today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are now nine months, roughly, into cannabis being legal in this country. And at the time that cannabis was given the green light, among other things, we heard that police departments were being trained to recognize impairment by cannabis. And we were told police departments would have the tools and the equipment to be able to test for cannabis impairment by drivers. And yet there are numbers out this week that say, and you ready for this one? There are almost no charges laid in this country for impairment by cannabis. Something like a hundred in total. Maybe a little more than that. But very few, relatively speaking, charges for driving while intoxicated or impaired by cannabis across this country. Police in Alberta have laid eight charges. The entire province of Alberta, eight charges total. In BC, and boy, if there is one province where I think we would expect that there may be a little cannabis being smoked, it would be BC. Zero charges, not a single charge for driving while impaired on cannabis in British Columbia. Here in Ontario... Sorry, my numbers earlier were wrong. Uh, Here in Ontario, there have been 100 charges. But most of those have been in northern Ontario, in small towns. There have been very, very few charges laid in cities. Oddly, Hamilton is leading the way that way. Hamilton has laid 15 of these. We are by far the highest when it comes to a big city police department for doing that. Let me bring in Ari Goldkind. He is a Toronto defense lawyer about this. Ari, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Your BC listeners aren't going to like that little jibe. Oh, you don't think that they believe me? <laughs> they do, and they're proud of it. Uh-huh. Ross Rebliati. Remember the Olympic uh, the snowboarder? I think he may have something to say about that. Well, I think he's probably sound asleep right now. <laughs> uh, just for a little background here, police every Christmas or around major holidays put out more ride programs because they know through experience that there are going to be more people stupidly, but drinking and driving around those times, correct? That's exactly right. And as I've said many times before, including on this very channel, there should be far more ride programs, not less, at all sorts of different times of the year and in places where it makes sense to have them. Agreed. Agreed. But if we, so if we follow the logic, if we say, okay, you know what, when there is an opportunity or when there's a reason for people to drink, we know that there are going to be people who are getting behind the wheel of a car. We don't like it. We don't understand it, but we know they will. Statistics Canada says that since cannabis became legal nine months ago, uh, use is up sharply in this country. So does it make any sense whatsoever that more people would not be getting behind the wheel of a car after smoking a joint? Well, believe it or not, Scott, it actually, in a perverse way, it does. There was never a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that this was an area akin to the far more serious area, which is impaired by alcohol and drinking. There were very, very few studies that suggested, if at all, that those who imbibe and smoke a joint are more likely to get behind the wheel now uh, or at any point after doing that than they were before legislation. Obviously, this is new, but there is a very weak correlation between the use of cannabis and cannabis-impaired driving. That is not the case for alcohol, but there's two ways to look at this, Scott, just to break down the article that we're speaking about here. It's either that the police have taken a vacation, for lack of a better term, from enforcing or finding or charging people who are driving while high. That's one version of it or that it is just something that is not on the radar because it is not something that is prevalent on our roadways, depending, of course, whether you're in a rural or urban area. 
I suppose that a third one could be thrown in, and we'll talk about this one in a minute, and that is that the the process to have someone charged, to find them, and then to go through the process to get a charge laid is onerous at this point still to the point where it does it's very difficult for police to do that. Well, that's right. That's what I was referring to by number one. In other words, police taking a vacation okay. during their duties. But let's explain in 30 seconds what that means in real life, which is different than alcohol testing now, which is if you're pulled over for a legitimate Highway Traffic Act reason, your bumper's off, your rear license sticker is outdated, you blew through a stop sign, and they want you to blow, you're blowing. End of story. But for marijuana, they have to take a blood test. And picture this through, whether you're in Hamilton, whether you're in Toronto, or whether you're in rural Saskatchewan, because rural Saskatchewan will be different, which is they've got a first show through trained people, I won't bore you with the details, that you're impaired and that they have grounds to take a blood sample. Now, remember, a blood sample is not an easy thing to get, very different than blowing into a breathalyzer machine. So the idea that police are going to take time to march you into an emergency room in Toronto or Hamilton where there's trauma patients, shooting patients, people with all sorts of emergency acute trauma, the idea that cops want to spend three, four hours sitting in a Hamilton hospital, do you? Nope, and neither do they. And so when you find somebody, uh, and even if you wanted to, and, and this has been brought forward, even if you wanted to, and let's say you're in downtown Toronto or somewhere in Toronto, by the time you stop the car, and I believe, t- correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that by law right now you have two hours to do this. So from the time you stop the car, you have to assess that they are intoxicated, make the arrest, get them into the car, drive them to the hospital, and get the test. And a lot of cops are saying, apparently, we're hearing, the chances of me being able to get blood in that time is almost nil. If I don't get it in that time, the charge is not going to stick. It's not going to go to court, so why bother? Not exactly. That is something that's being reported. It's not exactly accurate. Within two hours gets you through a bunch of more easy-to-prove legal doors. Okay. But, but if it was after two, three, four hours, there's ways to sort of get it read back. That's a legal term for saying you can still do something in court, but where you're going to see the police care a little bit more about whether somebody is high. Let's use the word high. I'm not talking about drunk. Is for example, if they get into a car accident and if they're taken to the hospital, then you can get a warrant for their blood. Then it's worth the wait. But for somebody else, Scott, who they, they think may have smoked the joint, you just have to think through police resources. And people can ask themselves, it's a very legitimate question. Do you want a cop taking off three, four, five hours of his or her night right now to go pursue this, to go to the hospital, or would you rather them focus on the kinds of crimes that many would argue are more serious? But it's also, the last part of that answer is, Canada should be, and I think is developing, there's technology in the States now, Scott, where it becomes easier to take a blood test rather than going through the Toronto Western, Toronto General, Hamilton General, where you're sitting and literally in a lineup behind people that are in far worse shape than your guy that may have just smoked up. So, again, as we said off the top, when this law came into place, one of the things that the government said was going to follow as well, it was going to come hand in hand, was the police would have tools to be able to do their job when it comes to impaired driving. And again, I'm talking impaired by cannabis. Do the police then not have those tools? Well, I think they do. So to get into the weeds, it's called the Drager Tester. Uh, A lot of people were complaining and moaning. Defense lawyers have made very 
good living the last little bit by saying, well, it doesn't work in the cold, this, that, the other. Where the police have the will, there is certainly the way. And remember, there is a big difference between the amount in your blood of the active ingredient in cannabis. It could actually lead to a jail sentence if you've got over a certain amount in your blood on even a first offense. The real area here is how, if at all, are the police going to detect it? Does the machine work? There are challenges coming up in court. There's arguments on both sides of that, but I think by and large the machine can can provide a basis within which your blood can be ordered to be taken. But going back to resources and the reality of this, Scott, because realities do matter in policing, right? Like, let's just remember that police make choices. This is a resource issue. This is a cumbersome issue. But in two or three years, Scott, I think this issue will be more ironed out. Anybody who thinks this should be perfection in year one without some kinks to be ironed out just doesn't understand the way the intersection of politics and the law works. The the, uh, the device, again, that you're talking about, the roadside, I've forgotten the name. You, you Drager. The Drager. Has it been tested in court? And I don't mean like scientifically tested, but ha- have there been cases that lawyers have or that the Crown has won that establishes that this is a reliable test illegally? It is not clear that it's gone up to higher courts yet, where a higher court will rule on the constitutionality of it, the efficacy of it. Efficacy is a fancy word I use in court. The, it's a great word. Whether it, yeah, whether it works or not. So there's a whole bunch of cases pending right now where sort of across Canada you're looking for that one decision out of a court of appeal of a province, for example, not just the lower court trial division. But so far, the machine is in use, but a lot of police departments, this is really an important part of your question. A lot of police departments across Canada haven't ordered it or don't have a lot of them or are somewhat skeptical of ordering them. They're not cheap until there is guidance from higher courts. But again, Scott, a lot of people want perfect to be the enemy of the good here. And in my view, this will take a little bit of time. It'll work its way through its court, through the courts, but impaired by alcohol, by alcohol, continues to be the scourge that most people who drive to work, drive their kids to childcare, drive their kids anywhere, should really be more concerned about. I think that most of us would be able, most of us, the average Joe would be able to recognize if we were standing beside a police officer at a ride check, helping them, shadowing them, I think most average people, if a person who was drunk on alcohol pulled up, we would be able to recognize that either by the glassy eyes or the smell or the slurring of the words or something else. Is it as easy for police, do you think, to identify that quickly in, in something like that, a guy, someone, a guy, a woman, who is intoxicated with cannabis? Well, two parts to your question, or the answer, Tim, uh, Scott, sorry, is very important to remember. A lot of people can get through ride checks without those indicia of impairment, without the glossy eyes, without the odor of alcohol. That's proven. That's one of the reasons the government changed the laws here. So it's very important to remember that, yes, somebody who's three times over the legal limit, four times, two and a half times, they might smell as if they're drunk as a skunk. But there are other people just closer to the legal limit that get by very easily. When it comes to impaired, to the part of your question, I think it would be much harder for somebody who is minimally impaired, emphasize minimally impaired by THC, by cannabis. That is something that may escape uh, detection a little bit more, particularly for somebody who is a seasoned user of marijuana. We all picture Snoop Dogg 
and that big cloud of smoke emanating from his royal snoopiness, that is not necessarily the case for somebody who uses marijuana recreationally or for pain or for some other reason. So I just didn't want people to be under the assumption that when you drive through ride or if you're pulled over, the cop is going to see you in a haze of some smoke almost like you're filming a video. Not not every van is like Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont That's High. I, I, I just, because I'm 45, I'm very reticent to go back to these older movies that millennials <laughs> would go, what the heck are you talking about? If, you, if you're a millennial and you haven't seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, as a complete aside, go watch it. Um, now, okay, so do we have, with, with alcohol intoxication at this point, it's pretty simple because we have a, a, a standard blood alcohol level that makes it illegal for you to be above that. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a line. And if you surpass that, presumably you're guilty is, does such a thing exist with cannabis? Yes. So as I was saying a few minutes ago, there are different levels. I mean, I, you, I mean, obviously most people listening to us watch TV, so they'll watch us TV and they know the term difference between misdemeanor and felony. So in Canada, there are, there are different ranges that if you're impaired or have a certain amount of THC and the active ingredients in your blood, you're going to be in a lot less legal danger than if you're over another certain amount. So there is that scale increasing versus you're absolutely right. It's 0.08 for alcohol. So when people say drinking and driving is illegal in Canada, that's actually not true, Scott. It is legal up to a point for people with certain licenses, obviously younger people with different licenses have zero tolerance, but as long as you're not over that threshold, that's the threshold for criminal conduct. For cannabis, as I said, there's different stages, which is why the blood test of this is both cumbersome and important. So there are different legal punishments depending on how much you have in your system. Because back when this was legalized, uh, then-Justice Minister Jody Raybould was asked about w- who would be charged or what would be the level. And her answer, and this is a quote, and I, I, I'm assuming this got refined since then. Uh, her quote was, it depends on a case-by-case basis. And I was thinking, that's, a, that's an odd position for the legal system to be in, that we're just going to figure it out as we go. Well, that's actually true. It, it is case-by-case, but it is level. But look, there's a decision last week that is, has completely escaped completely escaped mainstream media where a judge in Oshawa, Ontario, essentially threw out drunk driving rules by saying they don't apply to Aboriginal right. people. Right, yes. So I think that should be literally at the top of any parliament, uh, political discussion this week. It has come and gone. It is as bad and as serious of uh, a legal issue that now even impaired driving, so long as you check a certain demographic box, Scott, is now forgivable and minimum punishments don't apply. I'm amazed that for people who are focused on certain issues, that's one that people have been tight-lipped about, especially, Scott, if you're a person that thinks drinking and driving is as serious of a societal problem as I do, and I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I'm viewed as a traitor for even saying that out loud. I don't care. Truth is truth. Uh, last thing before we let you go, with that, uh, I mean, if this is a national law, if this is a national, there is a sense that if it's a national law, that there should be some continuity across the country. So how how do we have a situation now where Hamilton, as I say, is the leading police force, they've laid 15 charges, 100 in Ontario, none in BC. It, it, it doesn't seem like the law is being applied equally across the country with this well, cannabis. 
That's right. And lawyers have commented and said, well, it's not being applied uniformly. Well, let's break that down because I, I don't drink that Kool-Aid of that answer, okay? So in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Montreal, there are going to be more shootings. Inevitably, there are just more shootings, demographics, uh, cultural changes, crime changes, uh, population numbers. The whole enchilada goes into the mix of what are different crimes in urban centers versus rural. The idea that the Toronto Police Service, the Hamilton Police Service, especially, Scott, when we're dealing with issues of opioids and fentanyl overdoses and heroin issues and crimes of violence against women, the idea that an urban police service is, is or should be out looking or sitting in hospital waiting rooms for five hours on somebody who smoked a joint, that's a different fish in a rural small town in Quebec where everybody knows everybody. You could probably walk into a hospital waiting room in rural Quebec. You'll know the doctor. You'll say, I got to get this guy a blood test. There probably isn't a seven hour hallway medicine wait. So the idea that, you know, we should have the same per capita stats in Hamilton as we do in Timbuktu. I really resist that kind of thinking. I don't think it's intellectual. I don't think it's honest. And I don't think it reflects two things, the realities of living in an urban area and the policing demands that we put on police in urban areas who, quite frankly, I want them dealing with serious criminals and gangbangers, not getting cats out of trees. Ari Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer. Appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.